Hey friends, we're back with another a belter of a show. But first, thank you to our one and only sponsor, Cathcart Associates, independent recruitment experts who have been helping technology professionals find their dream role for over 10 years and obviously helping companies find the best people. Um, so on today's show, we have Rachel Ainsworth. She is the research software community manager at the Software Sustainability Institute um, at Manchester University and also the founder of the Manchester chapter of Her Plus Data, um, which is a data meetup aimed at inspiring, supporting and empowering women in data um, across the northwest of England. Uh, so she's doing some great work um, in her day job, but also with the meetup, which they've continued to do online, which is pretty cool. So yeah, ladies and gents, please welcome Rachel Ainsworth to How AI Built This. First of all, welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I've actually said this to a few people, but I made a list, first of all, in my head when I started this, when I started the idea of this like a year ago, but I made a list on LinkedIn of people that I thought I could get on. And you are on that list and I'm slowly working my way through it, which is nice. So yeah, I started with people in Manchester because I knew quite a lot of people in data Manchester and then a few in Scotland. And then it's kind of like snowballed from there. But we always um, start on education. So you did a Bachelor of Science in Physics and Studio Art. Um, at the University of Tennessee, is that right? Yep, that's correct. It's a bit of a random one. Yeah, I like that. So, that, that, I, I, some people have asked, "Why do you always talk about education?" Especially if someone's had a career for thirty years. Like, what does it matter? I find it really interesting that like nobody who works in data or probably technology has like the same background. Um, yeah, and physics, physics to art is a new one. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I majored in physics and I did a minor in studio art. And that's basically because I couldn't really decide. I really enjoyed both science and art. Um, I was just slightly better at science. Than, I don't think I, I could have ever made a career out of art, but it was something that I really enjoyed doing. So what's great about sort of the US system is you do have that flexibility to explore other topics where I feel like here in the UK, you're sort of pigeonholed quite early on. Yeah, so I did um, marketing and management, but I, I think I, in my head when I started, I wanted to do more of a marketing degree. But the way that the course was designed, you essentially didn't really have any marketing stuff. So I ended up doing quite a, like a, I mean, probably the most generic degree you can get, which wasn't actually on purpose. But like you said, a little bit of how the uh, how it's set up over here. So you're from Tennessee, or did you move there for uni? No, um, I'm from New Hampshire actually, so uh, New England. Um, but I kind of wanted to get out and try something new. Um, I had a friend who was going to Tennessee and he sort of convinced me it would be a good place to apply. And kind of coming out of high school, I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. I don't really think anybody is at 18. Um, so I said, why not? And they actually did have... Um, a really good physics program and it just sort of it just sort of happened but uh, I really enjoyed my time in Tennessee I think it's it's really important to kind of explore different areas of the country and you know also travel meet new people um, it's, a, it's a great way to learn and and network and and explore new ideas no 100% and I've actually um, I've got some friends that went to Tennessee for like an exchange program and they said they just loved it it's just a great great place to be for like for college as, as they would call it and then did you always know that you'd probably drop the art part and stay on and do a kind of PhD was that in the roadmap kind of early on or did you decide that later um 
Yeah, I didn't really have that much of a roadmap. Um, I actually listened to your your podcast with with Jennifer Stark, and I really it really resonated with me what she said, kind of not really having the long term plan. Um, so I sort of mostly knew in high school that I wanted to do science. Um, it was something I really enjoyed. Um, and art was more of a hobby, kind of photography to be more specific. It was just something that I really enjoyed doing. But then once I got to Tennessee and started doing the, the Bachelor of Science um, and started kind of going further in the physics degree, I realized that physics really allows kind of a tie between photography and science because, you know, with physics, you can study optics, you could design cameras. And then kind of from there, I started attending uh, seminars on astrophysics and cosmology, where I was just like blown away by the research that the graduate students were doing, um, like, you know, exploring the universe and and um, supernova and all these things. And then that's sort of when my thinking shifted to, okay, well, maybe I could design telescopes and it would still have that link. But then kind of as I continued in the in the undergraduate degree, I definitely focused more on the, on the science and, and art kind of yeah, fell by the wayside and is not even a hobby anymore. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. <laughs> um, yeah, so you mentioned, yeah, you started in that kind of astro astrophysics world. And it was probably something I was quite ignorant to until I started really kind of recruiting into data scientist positions and, and speaking to, um, I was talking about before, my sales director, Stuart, he, he's a physicist kind of from a degree point of view. And he kind of explained it early on to me that, you kind of there's no hiding from data when you're working in physics so like that's just like it's just part and parcel of the job but you don't even think about it but i kind of specifically from your point of view how is that kind of world of astronomy and astrophysics and, and how is that from a kind of data point of view i imagine quite quite mental in terms of the the volume and, and also just where to look as well yeah, I do sort of laugh any anytime I hear people talk about big data because uh, in astronomy, it's really just unprecedented, the, the data volumes. So just to kind of give an example, um, there was a really, you know, famous image of a black hole that was released last year in 2019 um, by the Event Horizon Telescope team. And that single image was made from five petabytes of data. So that's... <laughs> 5,000 terabytes or like 5 million gigabytes. And it's just, it's just incredible the amount because there's no way to actually send that amount of data efficiently over the internet. So it was actually <laughs> faster for them to ship the hard drives. I think they had like half a ton of hard drives that they had to ship to collaborators around the world. So it's just incredible. Um, That's incredible. Not enough room on their, on their G suite to get it across on email. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, kind of more relevant to Manchester is uh, sort of the next generation of instruments are going to, you know, be even bigger and better and and, and challenge, uh, you know, technology and, and data, you know, transport and storage and processing like to new extremes. So um, we're part of a project to build the Square Kilometer Array, which is a radio telescope that's under construction in Africa and Australia, but it's headquartered at Jodrell Bank Observatory um, in Cheshire, um, just outside of Manchester. And the reason why it's named the Square Kilometer Array is because um, we basically want to build a telescope with a collecting area that's the size of a square kilometer. So what a collecting area does is it, it collects light. So the larger collecting area you have, the more light you can gather, 
gather, um, which allows for more sensitive observations, which is really important when you want to kind of test the more, you know, hot topics in astronomy and cosmology, such as, you know, general relativity, dark matter and dark energy and search for things like extraterrestrial life. But of course, you can't build a telescope that's a square kilometer in size. So what we end up doing is building thousands of smaller telescopes. And that when you add them all up, when you combine their signals, it will, in the end, add up to a square kilometer array of collecting area. And this will help us investigate some of those, you know, big astrophysical questions. But the data rates that will come from the square kilometer array will actually be larger than the global internet traffic. So it's estimated that the data will, um, the SKA will produce data at a, a rate of approximately like up to one terabyte per second. So Jeez. this provides extreme challenges in, you know, how we collect, transport, store, process, and analyze, you know, potentially exabytes of data, which if nobody knows what an exabyte is, which even I can't really fathom that, that's, you know, billions of gigabytes. That's insane. And it, we've talked about this a little bit that on the show that a lot of like data science problems and, and theory hasn't really changed. The thing that has changed is the ability to kind of process it. Um, do you think that's the thing that uh, not, I, I can't think of a smarter way of saying it, like than, than like holding back astrophysicists is just like the fact that it's so hard to process the data that you as kind of astrophysicists need. Absolutely. Um, so the biggest challenge, I think, is that the infrastructure doesn't exist. And I'm not sure that the the pipelines and the algorithms even exist yet. So there are, you know, our teams put together now. So even though the, the telescope is currently un under construction and it'll be years before it's even turned on, astronomers have been working for, I think, already decades, you know, trying to to put the pieces in place so that when the time comes, we will actually be able to do something with this data. But it's already anticipated that we'll have to throw a majority of it away. I think I heard a statistic like over 90% of it will have to like throw it away because, you know, if it's generating, you know, terabytes per second, then you have to, you know, throw away, you know, what's not needed and really kind of compress and get down to to the image that the astronomer can actually use in the end. Yeah, no, so I mean, yeah, that's nuts, throwing 90% away, but if that's the only way of making it work. So I mean, that's it's certainly exciting. Um, <laughs> and it's cool that you're still involved in it after the, the PhD as well. So I was going to say, so actually, just before we get off the, the PhD, was it a process that you kind of enjoyed as a, as a student? Because I mean, we've had mixed reviews on the podcast so far. Yeah, you'll get a mixed review from me as well. Um, I had a love-hate relationship with the PhD. So I actually did my PhD in Dublin, Ireland. So I left the US in 2010 and moved to Dublin. So it was all very exciting for me, a, a, you know, a grand old adventure. And, I, you know, I met some amazing people. I got to work on an a really incredible project where I was using the actually the telescopes here at Jodrell Bank um, to study how stars like our sun form. And, you know, I was living my dream, doing kind of exactly what I thought I would do at the end of uh, the undergraduate degree. But by the end of it, it's just super burnt out. And kind of as time went on, I realized that sort of my initial idea of what research and being in astrophysics entailed was a bit naive. Um, and sort of as I progressed through my career, and this, this mainly happened a little bit after the PhD, but, you know, I became, you know, I sort of realized that it became more and more clear that doing scientific research is, is less about actually investigating your research subject. So in this case, you know, the universe, which is amazing. Um, and it became more about sort of how often 
you write papers and where you publish those papers. So it's it's an extremely competitive environment, which can lead to, you know, pretty dubious research practices. It can lead to really poor behavior, which can lead to really bad research culture. And so kind of as I progressed and particularly as I was finishing my PhD and into my next postdoc, kind of all my peers who I really respected and did really good science, they were all kind of abandoning ship or getting just pushed out. So I kind of became a bit jaded there, um, but I couldn't really seem to make the leap myself. Yeah, no, it's a similar story we've heard a few times around kind of the, the publishing and also just like people after a while just kind of like feel like they're a little bit stuck. Before we go on to you moving to Manchester, where, where you are now, how was the move from the States to Dublin? Did you love it straight away or was there a part of you that thought, what am I doing? <laughs> well, it's really funny because um, when I got the offer, I was super excited. I, my dad had lived in Belgium for a few years, so I had been to continental Europe, but I hadn't yet been to Ireland or the UK. And so I was really excited to get back um, and kind of explore new new countries that I hadn't been to before. Um, but when I moved, it was at the end of October 2010. And everybody was just like, oh, you're going to love it. It never snows there. And it's great. And it was literally like the worst winter they had in like 30 years. So it was, you know, really dark all the time. I had just moved away from all my friends and family. I ended up moving into a really horrible kind of living situation <laughs> where like I was renting a room, but the person I was renting a room from was still living in the living room. So it was all really, really sketchy. So it didn't really paint the the, the greatest picture for me there at the start. But, you know, once I got through the winter and I moved out into a new place and kind of became more confident in the work I was doing and kind of more settled and, and met new people and made new friends, it was just, it was such an incredible experience. And I love nice. Dublin. It's it's so nice. If it was slightly cheaper, it would be a great say. I've never been anywhere so uh, yeah. expensive in my whole entire life. Yeah. And when you're, when you're on a PhD stipend, it's really difficult, but you sort of, you know, spend your last pennies on, on a pint of Guinness on a night out. Yeah, you end up finding the really cheap places if you live there. But I went for a weekend where we just did all the proper touristy, awful bars that mm-hmm. it was like nine quid a pint. Um, yeah. But no, that's good. And it seems like, like you said about Jennifer, like kind of taking opportunities, it seems like you obviously moved away for uh, your undergrad and you moved to Dublin for your PhD. Um, You did do some postgrad work there as well. But then, um, uh, like you said, you you kind of took an opportunity in Manchester um, as a kind of research associate and research software community manager. So was that another similar story where something came up that looked interesting or were you actively looking to move to the Northwest? Yeah, so it's, it, it was a combination of things. So at that time, when I had finished my first postdoc, um, that was when I really questioned on whether or not I was going to continue in academia. Um, so I was actually looking for uh, tech roles in Dublin. But because I, you know, I'm not Irish, and uh, I was kind of having difficulties with visas and um, kind of getting roles where people would want to sponsor my visa kind of thing. And so that just kind of wasn't working out. But during that time, I was attending lots of meetups. And that was sort of my first experience attending meetups was in Dublin um, after my first postdoc. And so I was exploring 
kind of especially different data roles, different coding communities, kind of learning more what, what a role in tech would entail. But um, kind of for the more boring practical reasons, my my partner's from the Midlands in the UK. So we were kind of looking to make a permanent transition somewhere. And uh, so we were looking around the UK and Manchester just made sense for a whole load of reasons. It had, you know, a booming tech scene where he, you know, could apply for a data analyst role. And then it's actually sort of a mecca for radio astronomy, which is what I did my my PhD and postdoc research in. And it's, you know, the telescopes I had used, and I collaborated with the teams there. And so my one of my PhD co-supervisors, Anna Scaife, she had also recently been made a professor at the University of Manchester. And she's who really encouraged me to apply for a research associate position in her group. Um, so I went for it and we made the move to Manchester. But Kind of after that, even though I was doing uh, a research position and, and continuing on, you know, um, using these radio telescopes, uh, Anna also really empowered me to begin championing open data and open science within our department. And that's really sort of where my passion renewed and, and, and sparked, um, because like I said, it was a bit jaded after the PhD. So that's really what led to the, to the next job, which was the research software community manager position. Nice. And what does that kind of roughly entail? But actually, before we get to that, I bet you thought that Dublin was cold and rainy in October and then you, <laughs> and then you moved to Manchester. That must have been like a whole new awakening. I mean, I, I knew what I was getting into. I had visited Manchester loads. Um, I do really love Manchester, but I, I do have, you know, Palm Springs on my weather app on my phone and I just constantly compare the two and just kind of, you know, cry silently to myself. But yeah, no, yeah, um, I do love Manchester. <laughs> I have a sister in Los Angeles and I'm just like constantly, just constantly jealous. <laughs> <laughs> no, I bet. Um, and yeah, sorry. So the research software community manager. So you mentioned about open data and open uh, can open science. So how does that kind of work in practice? Basically, you know, as we talked about, you know, the academic culture isn't isn't great at facilitating inclusive and supportive science. So, you know, all you have to do is look around to see sort of the homogeneity of, of researchers and research departments. But you can't tackle some of the biggest data challenges in the world without diversity in your teams. Um, you'll just keep coming up with the same solutions to the same questions. So you really need diversity to be truly innovative. So when I saw the job description for the research software community manager position pop up, the job description said it was a role that was, you know, really focused on helping to establish and guide and support communities of practice in computational research. And I realized that I really wanted to work on helping to shift this research culture, you know, full time. I really wanted to, to do this advocacy work full time. And the funny thing is that I don't know if you've heard of the studies which show that women are less likely to apply for jobs unless they meet 100% of the qualifications, whereas yeah. you know, typically men will still apply even if they only meet about 60%. For me, the research software community manager position, I actually met all of the requirements for the job description. So I was just like, okay, I have to go for this. And so what it entails, um, I guess I should speak a little bit about the Software Sustainability Institute first, which is where the, the position is with. So the Software Sustainability Institute, or SSI for short, is a national facility that's working on research software sustainability. So it's working with researchers and funders and software engineers and developers and pretty much all other stakeholders um, in academia to 
promote and improve research practices uh, through the promotion of better software practices. So it's a collaboration between the universities of Edinburgh, Manchester, Southampton, and Oxford um, with distributed teams dedicated to to areas of research and outreach and training community and then software consultancy. And so the community and training teams are based at the University of Manchester. So um, they sit within the Department of Computer Science. And what the community manager position does is it manages the fellowship program that's run by the Software Sustainability Institute and also its annual unconference. It seems to make a lot of sense when you talk about it and have that kind of open kind of communication and trying to make kind of data level more, um, research more open. Uh, is it... Is it quite hard in practice to actually make some changes in there? Yeah, so so change is quite slow, um, and especially when you have sort of academic research practices that are that are really baked into the culture. Um, you know, in order to in order to succeed, there's there's quite you know a a stringent recipe to follow where, you know, you publish papers, you know, in these specific journals, you turn them all out. And because the focus is on writing as many papers as possible, effectively, there's less time and effort to put into the better research practices, which also include better software practices. So, you know, as research becomes more data intensive, more computationally intensive, researchers are relying more and more on, on good software and and data, obviously. And so if we're not, you know, documenting these things properly or writing our software in such a way that, you know, others can see exactly what we've done and how we got the results, if we don't do that, then, you know, the science can fall apart at the end. It's not, you know, robust. The integrity might be lacking and you sort of kind of get these poor research practices, you know, baked into the, into the incentive system that exists. So at SSI, yeah, we're trying to advocate for this change by, by helping research teams, you know, create more sustainable software. We do a lot of training to help, you know, upskill researchers with good software practices and yeah, uh, support, support ambassadors for change um, through the fellowship program. So, so people like, like I was, um, you know, advocating for change within maybe their departments or their specific research domains, really, you know, supporting them um, with their activities to help, to help promote that change from within their domains. Yeah, nice. No, that sounds amazing. Um, and maybe this was a prerequisite and one of the reasons you applied for the job, but do you think it helps that you've kind of been in their shoes to an extent? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, being sort of, I keep calling myself an ex-researcher and or an ex-astrophysicist, but it sounds really odd. But yeah, I definitely being within the system, you know, being a bit disgruntled with the system, I think really helps now supporting other people to help make those changes because that's sort of what I ended up doing in uh, in my research associate position at Manchester is I I ended up spending more of my time kind of helping people within the department make their data more open and and kind of pointing them in the direction of of better software practices so the transition to work for the SSI just yeah it made the most sense and it's such a perfect fit nice and and from a technical point of view I mean obviously you've got like an absolute bucket load of, of different technical and uh, skills and experience. Are, are you still able to kind of use some of those skills w- with what you're doing just now and also kind of add to them as well to kind of stay on top of that kind of best practice when it comes to open data and software? 
Yeah. So I feel like I have more time to sort of have a better overview of what's going on. So I think I'm, I'm in a better position to kind of see what skills and tools are out there, even if maybe I personally don't have enough time to, to learn all of them um, or to kind of really hone the skill set that I had previously used. But um, I spend a lot of time on GitHub. Um, I've recently become a... Um, a carpentries instructor. So there's this community called the Carpentries, which conduct software carpentry and data carpentry courses to help upskill researchers with basic computational skills. So teaching them things like version control using Git and Python and R and all of these different languages. So I have a feeling that that through instructing through the Carpentries, um, I'll be able to, <laughs> to to make sure that all of my skills are are, are honed properly. <laughs> Nice, yeah. yeah, that's the thing. It's like technology changes so quickly, right? So like you're gonna be advising people on new things all the time. So it's trying to like keep keep going with your your own skills. Yep. And then obviously we can't have you on without a chunk on her plus data Manchester. Tell us a little bit about her plus data, I suppose, and then how kind of you came to kind of be organizing and running the, the Manchester chapter. Yeah, so uh her plus data um, was originally started in Dublin. So, um, kind of, in, you know, after my first postdoc in Dublin, when I was exploring the tech meetup scene, that was one of the meetups that I attended. And I felt like I was finally able to relax um, and just chat and not be intimidated. Um, but what I really enjoyed the most about the event was not necessarily the fact that it was uh that it was only a room full of women, but also the fact that the talks focused more on the career journeys of the women as opposed to maybe uh, specific data projects or, or data tools. So especially, you know, as women are, are less confident applying for different tech roles, if, you know, they don't see, you know, other role models in those roles, or maybe if their backgrounds are a bit different, kind of like mine, um, it can be sort of difficult to see a pathway into a tech role. So, it's really, really valuable to, to hear about all of these different types of career journeys, which is um, what you were saying at the start of, of this podcast episode about what, what you like about um, asking people about their education and, and career paths. Um, because, yeah, there's lots of different pathways into tech and you don't really need to have, you know, a dedicated computer science degree or, you know, a data science degree Um people with different backgrounds and, and especially diverse backgrounds are really, really valuable. So anyways, I'm rambling again. But um, <laughs> at that point, when I was attending that first Herpless Data event, I actually already knew that I was moving to Manchester. Um, I had already been offered the position and you know was applying for the visa and all that sort of stuff. So I ended up approaching uh, the founder, Karen Church, and asking her if it was okay if I could start a sister chapter in Manchester. And she was super enthusiastic and was on board straight away and super supportive. And so, you know, once I moved over to Manchester, I kind of straight away started, you know, creating the meetup group and the Twitter page and kind of all that infrastructure that you need to start a group. And gosh, three years later, here we are. That's awesome. I mean, I, I know how much work goes into organizing these types of events and her plus data is significantly more regular and significantly better organized than uh the one that i organize <laughs> and i know how much work it goes into that so um, i can only imagine uh, what you and the, and the team do the two a month or one a month so there's one a month uh yeah we, we meet once a month and yeah basically our, our mission is just to you know support and empower and, and inspire 
anyone who identifies a, as a woman and has an interest or who works with data. So yeah, we do keep the scope um, quite broad so that we can, you know, be relevant to as many women within tech and STEM um, and data more broadly so that we can, you know, form an effective community and, and, and just show that there are more women in these roles than, than you might expect. And it's quite a touchy subject um, because we are, I hate to say it, we are semi-exclusive um, because we, we limit our, our members to, to women at the moment. Um, but that's mainly so that we can provide a safe space and, and overcome the barriers where, you know, women are, are less likely to ask questions in mixed audiences, um, because of those intimidation and, and confidence factors. So that's kind of why we, we stick with that. Um, and we're, we're always, um, soliciting feedback from our members to, to ask if this is something that they want to continue and, and most still attend for that reason alone. But, Something that we've started doing this year in 2020, which we're super excited about, is um, in order to to open up our events to to more community members and you know people of of all backgrounds. Um, we collaborate more often now with with other groups, so like you know Open Data Manchester and Tech Returners, and we have a collaboration with Python Northwest coming up, um, and that way we're able to to you know have broader audiences and, and, and engage with more. Um, members of the the wider Manchester data community. Nice. And I mean, there's a lot of data events in Manchester, but I feel like there's kind of a place for most of them. Um, and the, there is overlap, obviously, but I think it is a really good community, kind of generally speaking. So like there's uh, the collaboration part is, is really kind of is really good. Um, Absolutely. And some of the things you said about kind of when you went to your kind of first meetups and there was that kind of intimidation factor, especially coming from academia. That's one of those things that I mean, I'll openly admit that when we started Mankima, like it wasn't even on my radar. Like when we started doing these meetups, it was a small idea from Eric that, that it kind of spiraled into like a pretty big event. And, and I'm glad we had conversations with people like um, Jennifer Stark that you mentioned earlier. Um, I think you and Eric have had chats before and, and there's a person in Scotland that, um, we speak to quite a lot about events and like having those kind of people like kind of open our eyes a little bit and, and almost wrapping the knuckles sometimes and being like, yeah, you need to you need to be better at this stuff, which has been really helpful for us and, and some of them have really tried to take on board. But yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, trying to do so many events for you guys and keep them quite broad is great to get more people involved and it's something that I think we're trying to do more of as well. And some of my favourite Man Camel talks have actually been academia like kind of led if you like um as opposed to industry which i probably wouldn't have guessed at the start so no it's been it's been a big learning curve for us as well and i suppose generally speaking i mean it's not, probably not surprising given some of the things you've said already and, and your involvement with her plus data and also the fact that your job is around kind of open data and open research but you've kind of been a champion for general kind of openness and inclusiveness in tech we've had a few stories on the show <laughs> Uh, pretty bad um, pretty kind of like horror stories around that kind of I don't know that side of tech do you think now I mean we're more than halfway through 2020 do, do you see it getting better are, are people making progress in the kind of circles that you find yourself in or not uh, the short answer is yes to kind of touch oh, upon what, what, what you mentioned before um, 
I do, I mean, making inclusive events is really hard, especially when it's something that you can't really see or maybe you're not um, confronted with day to day. And so something with her plus data, even though, you know, we're, we're working hard to, you know, champion gender diversity and the like, there are so many other intersections of, um, you know, diversity and, you know, making sure you're not discriminating against those as well. So um, something we had to be really careful about is I think at the start, I was quite worried that we were having, you know, all white women panels. And so, you know, it's, it just, it does take a lot of effort. It takes a lot of research. It takes a lot of time, but it's, it's so worth it to make sure that your events, you know, represent your community and your community members um, and providing those, you know, role models and showcasing those, those champions um, and leaders in, in their communities so that you can, you know, inspire the next generation of, of people to come into those roles. So to come back to your, to your question about, do I think, that we're improving as far as inclusivity in tech? The short answer is yes. About the progress, I do think it's very, very slow. Um, I think there are, there are like statistics about how many decades it would take for, you know, women to close the, the gender pay gap at, at the rate that we're going kind of thing. And they're just kind of, um, they're pretty disconcerting. But if anything, I think that this pandemic has actually opened up a lot of eyes in terms of accessibility and inclusion. So it's quite sad and quite extreme that it <laughs> that it took a pandemic to, you know, open, you know, make people more aware of this. But, you know, employers have had to adapt to all of their employees, you know, working from home or remotely, many with caring responsibilities during the day. And, you know, there, there are people with these circumstances who have, you know, always existed and have been excluded from from tech and other industries. But now it's it's quite clear that there's absolutely no excuse for this and that there are ways to to include them Um in, in, in the industry and how important it is to include them in, in the industry, especially, you know, when you're trying to innovate and, and solve new challenges. So I do think progress is slow, but I do think the pandemic may have accelerated it a little bit. And especially with all of the, with all of the other things going on in the world at the minute, like Black Lives Matter has really highlighted that, you know, we must be anti-racist and include that in all of our inclusion work and, and working to kind of restructure how our industries function. And these are just things that we can't ignore anymore. And we never should have ignored it to begin with, but but if we don't, if we don't talk about them and don't address them now, then then it's it's quite blatant what what's going on, and, and people are just actively tra- choosing not to engage with that. And I think I think that's where the real problem is. So so I think as long as we continue to have the conversation and, and strive for um, inclusion and, and restructuring our workplaces, because I feel like a lot of the conversation is often around how do we you know recruit more women, how do we recruit more people of color into our workplaces when the real conversation should be about how do we fix the culture of our workplaces so that um, people from these communities want to apply and want to work with us and also so that we can retain them once we have them. And it's just, yeah. It's just super important. I've heard a couple of times on the show and also just speaking to people I know that the COVID's gonna actually have loads of positive impacts in terms of like the change that it's gonna have. But like you said, it's quite sad that it took the whole world to shut down for some of these changes to happen. 
when it yeah it probably should have happened before and the gender pay gap stuff that that just fries my brain that it's <laughs> even a it's even a discussion in 2020 i mean i don't know if it's maybe because growing up like my mum was the kind of main earner and, uh, and she was a head teacher at school and stuff so like i just saw that as like normal but the stats behind it are just like it's just so i i don't get it but obviously it's a very big problem so um it's like like you said needs to be addressed but no i'm glad you said we are making progress even if it is only slow progress hopefully we'll pick up especially like you said i never really thought about that but the, the everyone working from home and companies realizing that they can have some flexibility on the kind of nine till five for for whatever reason that still exists is good and I suppose to finish the show, or almost in a show, on a relatively, or a very positive note, actually, um, <laughs> I noticed on LinkedIn that during lockdown, I think it was maybe like a month or so ago, you were announced as one of the rising star winners in education and academia. So first of all, congratulations. That sounds pretty cool. Um, Thank you. And what does it, what does it mean the Rising Star Awards are put on by We Are the City, and it's basically to recognize and highlight women change makers in various industries who are really working hard to, to help others. So when I was asked to sort of complete the the information form, as you like, as part of the nomination, you know, it asks a lot about, you know, what are you doing to help others? You know, what kind of mentorship do you do? You know, volunteering and all that sort of stuff. So it's really heavily focused on on that sort of effort and 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 women coming up through through the pipeline. And what's really cool about the awards is that the the, the industries involved are, are so wide ranging. So there was an uh, education and academia. There was a technology section. There was you know people working in diversity and inclusion and HR. So it covers you know quite a wide variety of, of industries. And there were five women winners in each category. And I think there were a few categories for, for male champions of, of, you know, gender diversity as well. Um, so yep. In all, there were a hundred winners, which is very exciting. And I was, I was very pleased to, to be one of them and, and also a bit shocked because like, I think there were maybe over a thousand nominations and, you know, some of the, the women you see on that list are just hugely inspiring and, and have, you know, done amazing things. But what I, what I wasn't really expecting is actually to receive a, receive a big hefty award through the post. So I've got this oh, no big honking sort of, you know, murder weapon looking trophy <laughs> sitting up on my desk, but it's really cool and I'm really proud of it. That's amazing. But, uh, yeah, I think the award ceremony is normally supposed to be in London and, and like a big to do, but because of, because of the pandemic, we, you know, did it online as, as a Zoom call, like we do everything else, which. <laughs> Um, it wasn't anticlimactic. It was they did a really good job moving it online, and I do appreciate that effort. But um, I think they're also going to try and, and arrange for an in-person event when it's safe to do so. But no, it's it's a really inspiring list. I encourage everybody to go um, check it out, and it's definitely provided a a nice long list of potential herpless data MCR speakers. So amazing, I'll be, I'll be, yeah. And actually, something I've not written down, but you've made a good point. How have you found uh, moving herpless data online? Yeah, it's been interesting. And it's it's something that I think a lot of communities have asked whether or not they should do. Um, I've had experience with virtual events before. So I it wasn't really a question of not doing it. I thought it was worth a try. And I think it's important, at least for Herpless Data, to sort of maintain the momentum. And especially at the start of the pandemic, when things were uncertain and 
I just wanted to offer that community a space where 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 they where we could all come together and either talk about things or sort of maybe provide some sort of constant from before. But it's also allowed us to, you know, record the events. Um, so now we have actual, you know, outputs and, and videos of our events, which, which the speakers can then use to, to promote themselves and their own work, which I think can be hugely valuable, um, as far as, you know, career progression. So, um, no, it's been really great. And we still pretty much consistently have about 30 people attending each month. So it's been really successful. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I keep toying with the idea and then I keep just hoping that we're going to be allowed to be back in physical space soon, which <laughs> is just not going to happen. So, um, I, it's do, a tough I, one. I must admit, I just, for me organizing it, it didn't, it didn't have the same appeal. Um, maybe we should have done it by now. Uh, maybe we will. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the huge parts I like is the kind of like physical being mm-hmm. in the audience and listening to the talks and stuff. And I think, and that's just speaking from a selfish point of view rather than an organizer point of view. Like I, I love that part. So yeah. it, it made it less appealing to go online. And I think, yeah, it was just, it was all about manic at the start and we, and we did t- talk about it and then haven't ended up doing it. So um, no, I noticed that you got, yeah, you doing it, Pi Data Manchester are doing it and a few others. So it's good that there's still the kind of the ability. And um, I spoke to a lot of people, I think actually um, James has mentioned this before as well, that it gives you a chance to go to stuff that maybe you wouldn't have before. Because Absolutely. you couldn't get you couldn't get there, or it was the wrong time of day, or I don't know you were you were working, or it wasn't local. But like now, you can kind of like jump onto anything, really. Yeah, we've had people from outside of Manchester attend. So I think we've even had somebody from Norway attend. So um, it's definitely nice. opened it up in terms of that. And one of our speakers was was in Turkey as well. So um, it definitely it opens up the possibilities, but it. It is a lot of effort. Sometimes you might not think it's worth it, you know, if only a few people show up. But I'm happy to to continue providing. And yeah, don't know. It's it's a it is a tough choice, and it's definitely something that needs to be weighed, you know, community by community. But we're small yeah. enough that that it's feasible. Nice. No, I'm glad to hear it. Um, I was going to ask you when the next event is, but I keep doing this on the show, depending on when this gets posted. So I will find, <laughs> I'll find out when the next event is and I'll post it. Um, and just lastly, is there any other Herpless Data chapters? And if somebody wanted to start one, is there is there a way of doing it? So the only two chapters that exist right now are the one in, in Dublin and Manchester. My goal for this summer, sort of my pandemic lockdown goal was to actually um, develop a starter kit, sort of like how our ladies have one um, oh, so yeah. that other people can start chapters. So um, I've got, I guess I've got about a, a month left before summer's over and to try and put this together. But yeah, I basically want to, to put together um, a GitHub repository with all of the resources and basically a guide to, to running events and, and building the community um, that should hopefully make it easier for other organizers to, to take and build off. But no, nope, at the minute it's, it's two chapters. Nice. I mean, I think there would be a huge appetite in Edinburgh, for example. So, um, if you uh, once you get the starter kit to a place where you want it, please do send me it, and I'll uh, I can speak to a few people here because I think they would love it. Oh, um, and then, just lastly, then, where is the best place to keep up with what you're doing and the role that you're working with the SSI, but also Herpless Data as well? Um, where, where's the best place to kind of check everything out on um, social media? Yep, Twitter. So I'm at Rachel Evelyn um, because I created my Twitter account back when we still had personal Twitter accounts that we didn't use for work. Um, and then um, the Herpless Data Twitter account is just at Herpless Data MCR. 
Nice. Um, I'll tag everything in it as well when we post it. But thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Another great show, I think. Rachel is really, really interesting. She's obviously travelled all over, been in different places, and coming from that kind of astrophysics background, some of her uh, reference points on on size of data was pretty, uh, pretty mind blowing. And the work she's doing at SSI and also with her plus data is really inspiring as well. Um, obviously, culminating in her getting an award. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed. Um, please do check out Rachel and the meetup. Thanks again to Cathcart for sponsoring. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll be back soon. Thank you very much.